What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we have Christopher Tellison. Now, Christopher and I have done an interview before. We did it a couple of years ago, specifically about Moneyball and all his past work and Capote and The People versus Larry Flint. And earlier this year, I saw A Quiet Place. And so I knew I had to reach out to Christopher and interview him. So I reached out to him, but our schedules were so crazy, I wasn't able to interview him until about two weeks ago. So we finally got together and we sat down to talk about A Quiet Place. So this is my interview with Christopher Tellison talking about A Quiet Place. So how did you get involved with the project? They reached out to me. They you know, were looking for an editor for it, and they reached out to me. First, I wasn't available, actually. And then they reached out again, and uh, I was available. And I read the script. Because I, you know, if I'm not available or something, I'm not going to read a script. So, and then when I read it, I was just so taken with, you know, with the challenge of, of doing a film of this nature, of, of something where you have like two scenes of dialogue in the entire movie, and it's all about sound and and the aspect of kind of like horror from the perspective of an insular family who is like under this difficult situation of having to control their every move and their every word comes out of their mouth. So it was just like, wow, this is so interesting. It's such a strong and interesting concept. And then the casting was so strong you know, with uh, John and Emily and uh, the brilliant Millie Simmons, who was like, you know, just so interesting. And Noah Jupe, who was just great as a kid. Yeah, I hope Millie gets more work. Oh, gosh, she's amazing. It was interesting. Her her mother was saying how, like, after Wonderstruck, it was like she was trying to tell her, well, you know, there's not that many, you know, stories about, about deaf people. And then this comes up. <laughs> it was like, it's like <laughs> she's on a roll. They're going to write deaf roles yeah. for her because she's so good. She's got this inscrutable, interesting, like, dense presence. She has such presence. She's so interesting. Yeah. And... She did such a great job. I mean, it was just the thing that really worked so well for me. I mean, and what you know, we all felt was what the movie had to do to make it work was be absolutely believable as a family and understand all the all the logics and all the logic and all of the um, interaction of them as a family unit with this interesting, strange sexism that went on with like stopping her and not having her come with him. And it was really, you know, in her anger and, uh, you know, just the arcs of each character in terms of what they had to do to survive and how they had to learn as they went along. I and mean, her whole aspect of the whole fact that, you know, he had been working on these hearing aids, increasing this kind of connective frequency. And she ended up having, because of that, having this connection with these sonic creatures. And she figures it out. <laughs> and that becomes her weapon at the end. She turns the volume to 11, picks up that speaker and she's ready to battle them <laughs> it's pretty awesome yeah <laughs> you mentioned the sort of struggle between the daughter and the father and i'm wondering how did you work with the performances that you had to mold the underlying tension between the dad and the daughter you know how it is you just mine the performances you keep figuring the rhythms and the takes that are right when you do kind of your first response cut stuff it's to what speaks to you immediately and a certain amount of that stays with it but then you know through the 
process of going through cut after cut, you just learn more like, oh, pull her back a little here. This isn't feeling right. You know, it's, a, it's always a constant sense of discovery of trying to draw out all of the dramatic moments and all of the underpinnings mm-hmm. and all of the subtext. So that's just like an ongoing thing. I mean, in all films that I work on, that's just something that that's just a constant thing that I'm trying to work. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're working on a project like this, I guess anything suspenseful, it's all about sort of controlling what the audience knows and when they know it. Absolutely. So that sort of ramps up the suspense. So I'm wondering how much structural changes occurred around certain scenes. So like I think about the opening scene and how tense that is, but it's all about we see him take the batteries, but we don't know if he puts them in. And, you know, there's little pieces of information and in, in how you dole them out. Well, that we never shot him putting the batteries in. You know, that was definitely scripted. The opening scene was really a matter of like setting all the rules, understanding it through their activity, not being told that, but being shown that. Every single thing you learn, you learn how quiet they are, you learn every little aspect, and then you know that the little boy has some kind of aspiration that, you know, he's not understanding it as well as they have to be constantly told to be quiet the littlest one and sadly that is what is his demise and they weren't you know, 100% on top of that and the daughter feels racked with guilt because she gave it back to him but not thinking that he's going to put the batteries in yeah well she kept the batteries away right the father puts the batteries aside and tells the boy no 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 and then and takes the thing away from him too and then she just hands him back the airplane she figures it's just a toy without any kind of noise in it once the batteries are out what i was wondering is like was there a lot of shifting or structuring of scenes like that you know to test it out and see what worked you know you keep working the scene until you know you feel it's like ultimately you've turned over every stone to make sure that it's perfect yeah and that's a constant struggle. And also we were working without the sound design for a long time. So a lot of it was expressed through, you know, some rudimentary sound effect and through silence. Silence was a huge part of it. And so all of the rhythms were set, but then we had E2 as the company that did the sound and they had to invent the sound of the creature. And we wanted the aspect of her perceiving, like when you're on her, you always get the sense that, that things are more muted. So did you find, like, how did you utilize the the lack of sound as a tool then when you were cutting? Did that change how you cut in any way? I would say that, like, the whole piece, knowing what it is from the get-go, was always a matter of, like, just trying to get it to be very precise in terms of what you eke out and what you give and what you don't give, what you know, what you don't know. It was very subtle. One thing that's really very interesting is always the fact that, you know, they respond to things before her because they hear and she doesn't hear. So there's always that delay of hers, a rhythm that had to play out. That was a subtle rhythm of her that is very, very clear. It's most exciting part is when the creature's behind her. She doesn't know the creature's behind her. And she's experiencing the pain of this thing in her ear. And the creature is freaking out as well and takes off. And she has no idea that it was there. <laughs> and it's, that, that, that was such a strong concept and strong scene. And that's something, you know, we worked, and we, you know, everything was worked and honed. But also, on top of that, this was not a long post. It was like we started shooting in September and we had our big screening at South by Southwest in March. 
So it was fast. And we never previewed it because we didn't have the elements. So we were working with like no creature and with John in a mocap suit in the basement scene all the way up to January. In January, there was a big change in the design of the creature also. ILM did an amazing job on that. They did beautiful work and they worked very fast as well. So it was challenging in all the best kind of ways of storytelling and trying to make it work to its best effect at all times. You just keep working it. <laughs> now with John in a mocap suit. <laughs> in the basement scenes, he was playing the creature there until there was a creature. <laughs> well, and I, I was saying to someone the other day, I was like, the beard plays such an important role because if he had <laughs> shaved, he looks so young I know. that he's, he's like a little boy and I can't help but think of the office. So did you guys... You know, like when you showed it to colleagues or other people to get feedback, did you have any issues with... About The Office? With, well, with John playing the monster? Oh, of course. It was funny. So it was hard to get around if you showed anyone. You couldn't really show it. We, <laughs> we all understood. We were a very insular group watching it and figuring it out and couldn't really show anybody until there was at least something covering all that. He also was he was wearing a mocap suit and a pair of Vans. <laughs> this foot comes down, this scary foot, and it's a it's a black and white pair of Vans. <laughs> Pretty funny. Now, whenever I talk to anyone about this film, there's one scene that sort of sticks out for everyone. Like, there's lots of scenes that people reference. They talk about the first scene. They talk about you know the scene of discovering the hearing aid working as a tool, but the one scene that sticks out is the birthing scene in the bathtub. Oh, I know. It's amazing. And, and Emily was just so great. And also remember, that scene works because of the scenes that come before it. Like when she's like hiding behind the water heater in the cellar and like having contractions and trying to suppress that. It's so tense and it's so feeds where we come to with when she actually gives birth to build. It's always building, 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 and then letting go. Like when you don't know what's happened to her, we go away from her and he's running in. The kid does the fireworks to help her. And then when John comes up and finds the bloody bathtub, then behind him is the shower door. And then that bang, that bloody hand. So, so great. <laughs> <laughs> we had so much fun with the aspects of like, we knew that people were going to go jump out of their skin. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> it was really fun. We have a friend who had a child and then was pregnant with her second child and didn't realize and went to see this film in the theater. And she said she's never been more traumatized because she was just like so stressed. She's like, I can't imagine doing that. Well, who could imagine? I mean, it's an unusual situation. <laughs> it is somewhat in the realm of fantasy, but so realistically, that's the, the grounding of it, the grounding of the fact that you really feel these people, you understand them as a family. It ups the terror so much and the tragedy because he has to sacrifice himself for his for his family. And it's very it's horrible. Well, and there was a lot of subtlety to the editing too. It's like just little moments, sort of referencing things, just small things like all the Monopoly pieces being soft. Oh, isn't that beautiful? It's so cool. I love that whole scene. The elegance of their dinner, the fact that the whole thing was that he was about survival and she was about nurturing, like actually making a home out of all of this their kind of elegant dinner and they're praying. And of course, Millie is the reverent one and she looks up during the prayer and it's like there's little things that thread through 
And then, yeah, the Monopoly game is so terrific and the scare that they have there and you don't know what's coming and it's just a raccoon. Now, John Krasinski is the actor in it as well as the director and then his wife is also acting in it. How did you make sure that he got what he wanted out of the film but didn't fall in the trap of you know, falling in love with particular shots. Well, I mean, I have to say, I say John had an incredible handle on the story. He really had a very strong handle on the story. And he was, you know, just as brutal as myself in terms of making the story work. And Emily's such a brilliant actress. I mean, you could sit there and watch her for an hour having a contraction, but, you know, you have to shape it. Things just became very apparent. All the strength kind of came forward. And, you know, we just kept working the cut till you know, we felt it was perfect. Let's just keep on moving. Did you watch Krasinski's previous films? Because I know some editors like to get into the work of the director, but his films previous... But they have no relationship. I was going to say, this. they're so drastically different. <laughs> uh, but I will say, what John told me was that he and Emily watched Jaws like 30 times or something like that, and he did ask me to watch it. I, of course, had seen it, but I watched it from a very um, structural point of view, and that was really helpful and very interesting because it's like very much about being surprised by the expectation about normalcy, about things being just sort of plain, and then you don't know what you're getting into, and things happen so drastically and so fast. But there were certain things that were very interesting about watching Jaws. I mean, this is way off the subject, but... The rhythm of it was very interesting, especially that last scene that's on the boat, all the the restrictions of the boat angle-wise because of the space made me wonder, I wonder if they had shot that earlier or like it seemed to have, the rhythm of that and the the angle seemed to have been to inform some of the the earlier stuff. It was just interesting to watch it from a very, you know, like examine it way and you know what we were looking for in the movie was to just make something really both beautiful and emotionally moving and scary as hell i would almost be a little stressed because jaws was cut by dd allen's if i'm not mistaken no someone just did it was verna fields verna fields yes yeah verna fields yeah i'm not intimidated by it (laughs) (laughs) but i'm interested in everything yeah yeah, Verna Fields did brilliant work, and Dee Dee Allen, she's, she's amazing, yeah. Very strong, influential, important editor. Yeah, they're both fantastic. Well, I have one last question that I'd like to ask everyone, but we've interviewed before, so I'm going to change it up a little bit, and I'm going to ask what your favorite scary film is. My favorite scary film? That's really interesting, because I'm really not that into scary films. But when I was a kid, I was scared to death of a film called The House on Haunted Hill, and I saw it again, and it was the hokiest, silliest thing I'd ever seen, like on the Million Dollar Movie, which used to have these like films that they'd play over and over again. And it was something my sister and I would torture each other with, like, you know, she would force me to watch it and I'd be scared. Yeah. But some of the things that I thought were most scary, but is scary from a very different point of view, were these Mexican children's films made of fables. There was a Bremontown Musicians and a Little Red Riding Hood that were just nauseating and scary because they were like dubbed weird and the color was strange and the costumes were really garish and odd. But that scared me from that point of view. But I must say, from the point of view of things like suspense and such, I thought Jaws was, was quite brilliant. And I also liked the early Steven Spielberg film Duel. Oh, wow. Yeah. And also, interestingly, I remember a TV show called Night Gallery, Yeah. yeah. which was sort of like post Twilight Zone and Steven Spielberg did one of them with Joan Crawford and she played a very wealthy woman who was blind 
and she wants to buy someone's eyes. And it's a, just a very sad story. This guy who's like owes a lot of money ends up giving his eyes to her. And after her, the moment after her operation, and she's only going to be able to see for like 24 hours or something like that. And the moment they take the bandages off her eyes, there's a blackout. <laughs> and all she sees in the morning is the sunrise. It was really effective. So that was cool. I find it really funny, though, that once you get into post-production, seeing a horror film without the sound in the cutting process just removes a lot of the scary stuff from it. Yeah, it removes the tension in many ways until the cut works really well, and then you add the sound, and it just amps it up. No sound is a huge element. Well, thank you so much for letting me interview. Sure, sure, anytime, Gordon. So that was my interview with Christopher. I'd like to thank Carly for cutting this episode. I'd also like to thank Christopher Tellison for allowing me to interview him again. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.